listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Ryan Sokash, Managing Director at MediaCraft Pullman. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, very excited to do this. I know we've been waiting a long time to finally get together. You know, it's not only that, but I'm a huge fan of podcasts, and most of them happen here in L.A., so this is my little Hollywood moment, believe it or not. <laughs> That's right. On a podcast in Los Angeles. What else do you want from life? Yeah, exactly. Well, I have to say to start off that this is this seems, at least to me, patently unfair because you have like over five years experience as a radio and on-camera <laughs> personality. So tell us a little bit about your background in the media and entertainment space. I think what most people find interesting isn't so much my immediate background in media, but it's kind of what led up to me coming into media. And it might be interesting to people because no one really tends to talk about that, for lack of better words dark place <laughs> that many of us who have the urge to create millions of views on whatever platform have. You know, I, I think it's been known in traditional media that the best musicians, uh, many famous artists, you know, they've had rough childhoods or uh, times in their life with extreme struggle and, and this kind of possessed them to create, create, create. And not to compare myself to, to the greats or, you know, phenomenal artists, but I really grew up in a surrounding of disadvantage in a sense. You know, when I was in second grade, I was diagnosed as a dyslexic, which in the 80s was really treated as a serious sickness. I was put into a self-contained learning environment where the other children in that class had very severe issues violent issues. Uh, there were autistic kids in there. I, I think there were kids who had downright Down syndrome. So it was a weird mixture of people. Of course, you become alienated from the rest of society when you live at that capacity. And at a certain point, labels that are applied to you, especially as a child, become kind of validated by the experience of carrying the label. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So even if somewhere you could feel you're an intelligent person, the label that's been applied to you takes effect and you start to question if you're someone less than the norm in society. And, you know, amongst many other things in my childhood, being labeled as dyslexic, being in this self-contained learning environment and really feeling that I was at a disadvantage to the rest of what I considered, you know, the normal kids, it formulated a kind of black hole in me. So fast forward to high school. At that point, of course, I had kind of caught up with academics. I had been reintegrated to normal education. But by that point, I was the one who was messed up. You so still felt alienated from your earlier experiences? I was psychologically alienated. So I could meet a guy like you. You could be perfectly nice to me. 
what I was projecting at that point, you know? So it became kind of this hyper isolation, but at the same time, uh, young people, especially, they need to have validation and acceptance from guys like you, from the pretty girls, from the ugly girls as well, from society as a whole. And this turned me towards the arts because it was the only way that I could really imagine making myself relevant within society. And so, you know, from the age of like 15, I was hard driven to make something of myself, make a name for myself. And I pursued it through music. Of course, you know, in the late 90s, we had amazing rock music. The Smashing Pumpkins were my favorite band of the time and many of the other grunge bands that came along with them. And I chased a dream that became impossible to reach, not only because of my own limitations, but because the industry shifted so much in the early 2000s with the emergence of Napster and the way that distribution changed through the internet. I always had this coal burning inside of me. I was always looking for an audience. And at a certain point, it became apparent that YouTube was a platform without a gatekeeper that I observed other people building an audience on. And I figured that if I made some impression there, now I'm talking about when the the site was still quite fresh and new, I could get noticed there enough to bring people over to hear my band, to hear my music. So music became your creative outlet and the vehicle for reaching the audience. The way you expressed that was through the power of YouTube. Exactly. And the motivation was to fill a void that I had in myself from childhood. Of course, people become adults and and they grow out of their complexes and their motivations change. So if you fast forward to when I was 28, my first daughter was born. Uh, Life looked beautiful and optimistic. I didn't want to create this brooding music and I didn't need the same kind of validation that I needed when I was 18, for example. So I started to recognize online TV as a potential vehicle for a career. Back then, uh, YouTube wasn't quite as monetizable as it is today. So I went into radio journalism. I worked for some web portals. Uh, you know, did I did some things that, quite frankly, I'm embarrassed of. If you search my name on YouTube, you can still find many of those videos. But it was a job, and I respected it. Uh, but all those experiences helped me understand the potential of online video. And now at 35, it's like... There's a nice Jason Isbell song. It's a new song. And he says that he's written enough songs about himself. And that's exactly the frame of mind that I've been in for the past five years in creating MediaCraft. I want to do something that's greater kind of in a universal context, not about me, but about massive societal influence. And empowering others to have that level of influence. Exactly. Interesting. Would you say that your experience as a creative, right, as an artist, informed your ability to work with those types of people on the other end of the table, right, on the business side? I mean, it does and it doesn't. On one hand, it does because when you sit at a table with a true artist, they also feel validated, you know, in our context in video by the fact that their video had achieved one million views. You know, I, I like to put it into stadiums. The National Stadium in Warsaw seats 50,000 people. So if you have a video with a million views, how many stadiums is that? You couldn't reach that if you were a touring band for a year. And I believe that true artists, and there are some who create YouTube, they recognize 
the merit. And, and for me, that's very rewarding. And I find it very easy to, to kind of manage and build up artists who identify the significance of what they're able to do with this. But on the other side of the coin, there are plenty of people who achieve far beyond a million views on a video, but they have no idea the actual merit of the reach that they're creating. They, they, they don't seem to value what that's really worth. And it's in their fingertips. And that for me is very frustrating. That's one of the most frustrating things of my job. You couldn't convince many of those pop stars, because that's what they are. They're contemporary pop stars, that what they're doing should not be taken for granted. But we work with them and challenges appear with managing those those type of people. But in a sense, it's the core of our business as well. So whether I like it or not, we are definitely successful in dealing with that. And one thing is important to note in terms of building a team or building a company, I really make it my prerogative to employ people who I believe are smarter than I am, who are more skilled than I am. And I say it jokingly, but it's kind of true. I'm, I like to think of myself as like a Forrest Gump kind of figure. So, you know, I put myself out there. I set myself up for opportunity and I do capitalize on it. But other people's skills are absolutely paramount in doing yeah, so. That's so key. You are the conductor of the orchestra, but the, the people playing the instruments need to be very talented in order to create great music. You phrased it much better than I. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hear, you know, you've mentioned uh, Warsaw a bit and obviously working at Mediacraft Poland. Let's hear about your journey to, to Poland. How did you arrive there? What drew you to the name of the country? Okay, I didn't, I didn't coin this. Uh, I've heard other people who have assimilated to Polish society say this. I didn't choose Poland but Poland chose me. And that's, and that's truthfully how I felt. So if we backtrack again to when I was around 18, you know, I was searching for something and I was certainly searching for an escape from the life that I knew in America to the point that I took nighttime college courses in high school to graduate early and run away from America. Mm. And the first country I lived in... you originally from Chicago. Yes. Okay. Chicagoland so area. Experience growing up in and around Chicago and then decided to, to make a big bold move. Precisely. And I went to Portsmouth, England. And I imagined that Brits would be these ultra sophisticated, talented, deep people, you know, because that's what I knew in the arts or in literature or history. And I know that British people like that do exist, but I chose Portsmouth, which is like the most blue collar, soccer hooliganistic <laughs> hellhole that I think you could choose in the United Kingdom. And so instead of getting acquainted with British fine arts, I learned what British gangs fight sounded like outside of my window. And so that was quite disappointing. But through that disappointment, I explored into continental Europe a little bit more. And one of the places I visited back then was Poland. I went because I have some distant heritage from the country and, and I wanted to see where my bloodline was from. You know, as Americans, we don't really have an ethnic identity per se. I mean, an ethnic identity that is connected to the flag, which we all salute. And so I wanted to learn about that. And my first trip to Poland, I learned that I was American. You know, that, that was the first lesson that I learned. But I also saw a place that seemed impossibly unfamiliar to me, distant. And, you know, this was the year 2000. So it was a very, very different place. I couldn't imagine basic things like having a bank account or buying insurance or having a job or paying taxes, stuff like that. 
but I fell in mad love. I, I always say with, with full respect to my wife, but Poland was kind of the romance of my life. And I mean that in every sense possible by expressing this statement. And it still is to this day. So I formulated such an obsession about Poland that I could recognize Polish people on the street in Chicago. And if I did, I would run up to them and I would ask them, oh, are you from Poland? And I would try to say a few things in Polish. And they were looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Is he mental? And I guess I was mental, but you know, that's... And Chicago has a pretty large, you know, Polish population. So these encounters mustn't have been that infrequent. <laughs> they were very frequent. And just, I kept going back. And at a certain point, you know, I, I couldn't return to America. I had a ticket. I had an apartment, I had a life here, but I just couldn't go back. And I simply stayed and piece by piece, I created the puzzle that is my life. And I hope that I'm a piece of the puzzle that creates Poland, but I think only time will be able to tell that. And did you start off living in Krakow or have you, how long have you been in Warsaw? Yeah, so I, I lived in Krakow for seven years and it was a fascinating time in my life. But Krakow for all of its glory, has uh, a lot of limitations as well, uh, professionally, for a person like me who wants to work in media yeah, or show business. Yeah, the, the media hub. Exactly. Sure. And it's ironic because I played in a band for many years and we would do shows in Warsaw. And every time I left Warsaw, I had this feeling like, oh, I'm so glad I'm leaving here. I don't like the vibe of this city. So I could have never anticipated that I would move there. But again, becoming a father... It can make you reevaluate many things you think you know about what you want in your life. And one thing for sure that I wanted was to be able to provide for my kids in a way that would also make them proud. And I knew that Warsaw could offer that to me. And Warsaw is a very dynamic, evolving place. I believe that in the next 15, 20 years, it will actually be a significant global city. You know, they're building tower after tower, many of them. Are quite vacant, but we're just kind of waiting to see what happens with Burdex. Maybe boatloads of qualified workers will show up to, to Poland from many different countries, Great Britain included. The city will continue to evolve in wealth, not only monetary wealth, but wealth of, of knowledge. So you know, Poland has struggled with a brain drain, I think is the expression, uh, around 2004 when borders started to open in the European Union. But we see many people starting to come home and they should feel welcomed yeah, because they're terrific. needed. Yeah. And how did you get in touch with the MediaCraft team and, and uh, originally start at the business? It's a funny story because when I made the decision to move to Warsaw, I went there on the premise that I was going to work for Polski Radio and their external service. So again, in my Forrest Gump style, I spent a year networking with people and meeting every celebrity that I could, interviewing them. And someone from the radio had noticed this on my Facebook page that I was, you know, name dropping big time pictures, you know, in arms with with rock stars <laughs> and stuff. And they're like, what? What are you doing, Ryan, with all this? And I'm like, um, I'm making a radio show, <laughs> you know, but it just so happened that they had to spend their uh, annual budget like in that moment. So it would be renewed for the next year. So not only did they buy everything I had recorded with these people but they bought like 20 shows that I hadn't even made yet. I was kind of made official. I had a, a radio show on the national radio. I moved to Warsaw, but the next year the budget was cut. 
And I decided to just, you know, be a scrapper about it. I continued my radio show because I knew that was the only way that I, I would be able to get ahead. So I, I did it on paid for a very long time. But thanks to that, I was offered a FM show, morning radio on a very popular channel uh, called Chforka. I was interviewed on all the other Polsky radio channels. I started to be invited to interviews on television and different places. I uh, had a job with a very famous band called Coma. And, you know, these things just kept accumulating in a sense. And I became somewhat recognizable. Now, at the time, I had much longer hair, kind of a, a whole different persona. But uh, thanks to this recognizability, I got an email from a guy named Zoltan. And his his Facebook picture looked real funny. He, you know, he was like a real stiff kind of business guy. A great guy, but when I first saw it, I, I just erased it because I figured it's some kind of spam. And uh, a lot of people were mailing me then particularly, but then he mailed me again and in a different place. And I thought, it's oh, interesting. And he said, he's working with this company, MediaCraft. They'd really like to meet me. He said, we could go out for dinner. So I'm thinking, who am I to say no to a free dinner? <laughs> you know? So I was like, all right, fine. You want to fly to Warsaw and buy me dinner? Then that, that would be fantastic. And he came and I got the dinner. I ordered shrimp, you know, it was very nice. And he explained this concept of a multi-channel network to me. And it took me a little bit of time to process that, actually, because YouTube had previously been for me and for others who I knew a vehicle to get them somewhere else monetarily. But most people didn't look at YouTube in Poland at that time as a straight up source of revenue. You know, you could have a YouTube partner channel, you'd earn a little something, but everyone still had a job. So it was more of a promotional and awareness asset. Exactly. And MediaCraft, they were really into, we're not taking anything away from the creator. We're, in fact, we're going to invest in the creator and only recoup later. And I love that philosophy because it really sat well with the nights when I was in a band and I slept on a wooden floor and ate gas station food and felt like a bum. Had someone invested in me at that time, you know, I, I may have really been able to create more opportunity for myself. So I thought, this is amazing. We can really help people out and we can really do something significant. So I flew to Cologne, Germany. And I saw their headquarters. It was amazing. It was a tower, you know, and there were people shooting and there were fans outside. And I had never not only seen something like that, but I never imagined something like that. So when I saw it, I said, okay, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I just like uh, clinged onto it with my entire being. I started as a part-time contractor But you know, I was working like 60 hours a week to make it happen. And actually open the Polish office. They didn't have a footprint or a presence there. Nothing. Before. It no. was me and an iPad and my connections, you know. And we were up against fierce competition in Poland because we were a little bit late to the party. You know, the party already started with a company called LiveTube. And they had collected all the really, well, not all, but the, the vast majority of really key channels. So it, it was particularly stressful for me because I recognized the potential in it, but I also realized that it was going to be an uphill battle. But you know, I'm, I'm the type of person that 
you know, back when I played in a band, if we drove across the country and no one had shown up for our show, we would still play. And we would play as hard and as good as we possibly could. And it was it was a matter of pride. And for me, MediaCraft was the same thing. When I put my name on this, and when I got behind it, you know, it might be a funny comparison. I, it was almost like joining a gang or something. You know, it became a really strong part of my identity. And so uh, forget about sleep, forget about any other priority. I mean, when my second daughter was born, like I had flown from Cologne where I was with a MediaCraft partner from Poland, landed, got the call on the plane while I was still on the plane. My wife is like, go to the hospital, off the plane, deliver the baby all night. Next morning at like eight o'clock in the morning, I'm in the hospital with my wife, with this new baby. My wife also works with MediaCraft and our computers. And, you know, we're we're going at it. And so we were and still are deeply into the mission Mm -hmm. of the company. And today, MediaCraft, which started in Germany, is now active in Turkey and and originally had a presence in the Netherlands as well. So what what are some of the primary differences between your operation in Poland and what the broader parent company is doing in those other regions? We really all came up together and in the beginning the focus was on having a partner network as i guess the majority if not all of the mcns of the time were focused on so it was a sense of licensing partner channels and then exploiting them for product placement specials which in poland is really the only way you could make a meaningful living with a youtube channel but when the turkish guys came into the scenario they recognize some of the disadvantages that the company could face in working with partners. And so they just, in my opinion, I mean, the way I perceived it kind of disobediently said, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to produce our own YouTube channel. And I think they had some other uh, reasons for taking that measure, but they just went at it fiercely. Now, the other companies in MediaCraft had their own productions but in Poland, for example, the original meaning for our productions was were so that we could promote small partner channels. So we had like a long tail situation because LifeTube had the big channels. So we needed a way to bring up smaller guys. And we effectively did that in many scenarios. But we initially invested in those original productions so that we had a vehicle to produce upcoming YouTube stars who had potential. The Turks started the channel and they recognized that 100% ownership means 100% of the revenue stays within the company. And they were extremely successful. They, they were also entering their market in a very, very good time in terms of our industry. Bad time politically, because when they launched, that was right. I remember it very well, right around the time that they launched YouTube was blocked. Mm-hmm. The government has taken action against YouTube in Turkey. Exactly. But they were so dynamic, they just moved over to Daily Motion. And they created views on Daily Motion that I couldn't fathom. You know, I've been pushing content on Daily Motion for ages with no return. In Turkey, they did a lot of things that inspired me. You know, they made their own productions. They were on multiple platforms pretty early on. They had a little bit more of a what I consider like a factory approach 
to production. So one of my own shortcomings is that sometimes I can maybe be a little bit too artistic or a little bit too conceptual with the company. And thanks to having the example of the Turkish company, you know, I really kind of recognized above all things, the fact that YouTube formatting is not television formatting. And that was a hard thing for me to accept for a very long time. But after spending time in Istanbul with them, you know, it, it really made sense to me. I mean, it's amazing. I, I've had Turkish fans come up to me because they see the MediaCraft logo on my computer there. So it's it's quite influential. Now, the German company, they offered something else. They were very prestigious in a sense. You know, everything was very elegant, very uniform. And talent management in the German company was of the highest standard, you know. So when MediaCraft partners came to LA for VidCom, they all went out on a fancy yacht for one of the afternoons. They went to Disneyland. Sounds pretty great. Where do I sign up? <laughs> well, that offer's expired. Sorry, James. <laughs> but these are things that I would not have imagined doing. These, these are things that, again, as an artist, I didn't necessarily understand were necessary to satisfy talent, but I was given a very good example. And then the Dutch company, they were very adaptable, in fact, because it was always a little bit more of a challenge for them to make large viewership. I think on account of the size of the population is smaller. Also, the industry was more developed. And so Jonathan, who you also interviewed here, he really amazed me in his ability to go out and sell what he did have, to sell Snapchat to sell Facebook pages. And these are things that we really initially didn't put into our portfolio because we were hyper-focused on YouTube. And we were also banking on the idea that CPMs might improve in Poland, which they unfortunately really didn't. And so I was able to take the best examples from three different markets and implement them in Poland. And I think that most people in our company would look at Poland as a success story. And I can't really take too much credit for that. I was really given uh, the best access possible to various markets and various solutions for problems that are very difficult to solve. And so we implemented this in Poland. And to be fair, we were also able to avoid some mistakes uh, that were made by our peers, not only MediaCraft, but other companies. So you know, I, I try to be really sensitive for the successes and mistakes of those around me and myself. And for that reason, I'm also try to be very open about the mistakes that I've made, because I think a lot of people can benefit from that in their own progress. Sure. And, you know. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made during your time in MediaCraft that have been you know, very valuable learning experiences? You know, there were a few talent management cases that I believe I mishandled. Again, not having a sensitivity for the requirements of the artist, because I personally didn't understand that. I should have more taken note from what Christoph Crackton or Spartacus or those guys were doing, because I think that it could have lengthened relationships that had fantastic potential. The other thing, of course, uh, at times were approaches to productions that I attempted to do. 
We had some ideas that were really, really ambitious, too ambitious to be sustainable on YouTube. And of course, there are PR benefits to pursuing those ideas. And sometimes that's why we do it to showcase what we're able to do. Like I did a video personally uh, on my own channel called America called Standing in Three States at Once. It's part of a series where typically I go and I stand in three countries at once and we go to ridiculous lengths to get there. And we have a nice little adventure along the way. This is how I spend my Sunday. But I wanted to introduce the idea that A, what we're doing could be relevant to an American audience and B, could be done at a linear television shoot duration. So like 30 minutes programming. Now, a 30-minute program is really hard to pull off on YouTube. You have to have some brilliant, like, Quentin Tarantino kind of directing going on, you know. it's People really, when they click into a video, they're signing up for, like, a three- to seven-minute experience, typically. Many of my videos on Cult America will be, like, 10 minutes long, and I kind of get away with that. But this one, the running time was 33 minutes, and I spent more money than I would like to admit on this podcast in producing that. And so when we put it on YouTube, I had really grand expectations of creating a reach in America and kind of breaking through with that channel. But what happened is the video got 6,000 views and fizzled off. Now, I use it as a portfolio piece, and I have since actually signed some production deals on account of being able to showcase it. But it was a massive, I don't want to say waste of time, but use of resource that could have been used differently. And I think the third thing was that we got into like really aggressively pushing active sales. We got into that a little bit too late in Poland. Uh, it's it's going great now and it, and it has been good for the past few years. But if I could turn back time and do it all over again, my approach would have been A, original productions, B, sales infrastructure, and then C, partner network, because the partners, the only thing they really need at the end of the day is to be able to make a living. So you need the sales infrastructure, of course, to provide that. And there are really plenty of small channels that have humongous potential, but they don't necessarily have the social network to be able to become a celebrity themselves. So with the original productions, I still think it's a fabulous way to produce upcoming YouTubers and, and really give them an opportunity. So had I put that infrastructure in place, I think MediaCraft would have been a very different company today. But on the other side of the coin, I can't guarantee I would have been able to produce you know, 150 million views in such a short period of time as I did with original productions because half of them don't work out the other half start to work out but then aren't monetizable you know you have issues with talent so yeah kind of long-winded but i would say those were were like the big issues yeah if i could go back i would have i would do differently no very helpful thanks for sharing because that's instructive into some of the similar challenges that i think other new media companies face right working sure. with talent trying to do original productions how to scale that over time sure. so. but it's funny because when you when i talk to like uh you know my competitors or or counterparts it's it's always uh, we're the best we're the biggest there's no problem <laughs> we're very profitable we're very rich life is good 
And you're looking at yourself like, oh, so am I the only one who's losing sleep at night? Like, <laughs> you know, you look at their Don't Instagram. Exactly. You yeah. look at their Instagram account and stuff and they're like, you know, yeah, signing a big deal, all smiles. And But I think it's important for people to be open and able to, to talk about mistakes because it's impossible not to make them. And uh, as an employer, I very rarely get upset with people when they make mistakes. More I would get upset for them not uh, acknowledging and managing their mistakes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think when people are, are able to own them, that makes a company honest and solid. So having learned from these mistakes, what does the future hold for MediaCraft Well, I launched a platform called MediaCraft TV, and it was an off-YouTube platform that belonged to us. We gathered over 30,000 users there, which is a pretty freaking hard thing to do. And uh, we've done a few original formats there. And it was a very interesting experience because it was really the first product that I created where people were calling up, you know, out of nowhere, asking to book pre-rolls. And we had a little bit of a competitive advantage in the sense that we didn't really have to respect anyone else's price book. You know, the... Our YouTube inventory is open for us. We can sell pre-rolls, but in respecting Google's price book, it's pretty hard to do, honestly, especially since there are probably different arrangements with different media houses who, you know, will buy like millions of pre-rolls. We're just selling a couple hundred thousand here and there. So for me, I treated the platform like a long-term destination, you know, a place where I would love to end up. I didn't imagine it to become the next Netflix or anything like that, but it certainly showed me that uh, owning your own platform can, uh, A, give you really a lot of independence. No one's going to surprise you with any new algorithms. You know, you have your users there, you have your fan base there, and uh, you're in charge of your own prices. So, you know, you can really be your own company when you have your own platform. Uh, The disadvantage, of course, is that it's very hard to sustain the viewership. So we would have to push people from YouTube to the platform, which would hurt our YouTube watch time, which would drive those channels down. So we really had to be very tactful. But I would definitely like to continue pushing in the direction of an original platform. I would like to launch more original productions. Uh, our channel Punky crossed a million subscribers in the past three months. I think we, we had four or five other original productions cross 100,000 subscribers. Uh, the watch time and the views are are growing. And it's, it's very difficult, of course, to find the resources to launch new channels. But you have to, because on YouTube, right now, as we're doing this podcast, there are probably about 10,000 kids out there with more fresh ideas and maybe even more energy than I have who are starting their channels. So if you want to stay relevant in this race, you know, you have to constantly produce and create. So aside from that, I I want to continue honing in my relationships with agencies, media houses and brands. I recently have a little bit of a hobby of networking with politicians. I'm not quite sure where that's leading, But I'm very, very fascinated with it the same way that I was when I was interviewing those rock stars, you know, six, seven years ago. Uh, It's kind of an educational experience for me. And so what do you think is the end game of uh, working with political uh, personalities in Poland? 
I'm fascinated by the value of reach. I mean, MediaCraft goes for a mainstream audience. And so for us to sell a commercial, we have to create millions of views, at minimum hundreds of thousands. It's very, very hard to do. But I feel like in online television in Poland, there is a demographic that's kind of overlooked, you know, and this is 35 plus. It's my intuitive feeling, and some of the people who I met in LA actually uh, verified this, that these people are available online, but on Facebook. And so one of the things I want to learn while I'm out here in LA is actually really how does Facebook work with live, live streaming? How do you exploit it to monetize it? And I would like to go back to Poland and incrementally, you know, this is long term. It's really my dream. And I think a lot about this, creating an online TV network for adults. And with my own program, Cult America, most of the people who approach me on the street, they're adults. Uh, when I was flying here, actually, a guy came up to me on the plane. Oh, I know you from your channel, you know, and I love when those connections manifest themselves in real life, because it's the only physical experience that I have of my work. You know, a builder lays bricks and then he has a building. And we put out a video into the world. Millions of people see it. We don't necessarily feel it. And what I kind of think about is, all right, if the guy came up to me on the plane, you know, how many people do I walk past that don't say anything? And there must be many of them. How do we get to these people more? How do we create content that they're going to want to consume and when will they consume it? So there's a lot of learning that I have to do, but there are also many campaigns that I can't deliver because I don't have that demographic. These people are professionals. Uh, they have kids, you know, they have a life beyond their telephone. Even if they're also stuck in the telephone 90% of the day, it's a lot harder to get to them than it is to get to a 15-year-old guy. And so this is, uh, I don't want to say the final frontier, but it's an area that I see vast potential. I think the formatting would be entirely different. I think live streaming would be interesting because you're cutting production costs to an absolute minimum. And no one else is really True. chasing it in yeah. Poland at this point. So, And Facebook seems like a, a uniquely suited platform for that, given you know the focus on in-newsfeed content, right? the yeah. emphasis on, on politics and news content already, that uh, Facebook Live and the Facebook newsfeed in general is a great way to highlight those, those types of content. Well, the thing that I love about Facebook, the thing that I really want to learn how to sell is actually the, the boost feature. You know, essentially, when you have a Facebook page, and you see that boost feature, the first reaction I think most people have is that that button is your enemy. Because I know that's how I looked at it. Like, what kind of scam is this? I work up a Facebook following, and then you want me to pay to reach these people. But if you look at it another way, you can actually guarantee a certain reach at a much less expense. When you put out a YouTube video, I could guarantee you a certain number of views. But at the same time, I have to cross my fingers a little bit. It's going to happen because there are a million different things that could go wrong. Obviously, we have solutions for that. But I kind of like the idea that, for example, I could produce a video for Facebook for a client. Guarantee one million people are going to see this. A part of the budget, of course, is the boost feature, but one million people would see it. 
And at the same time, the, the reach of the Facebook page and the following the Facebook page is going to grow, let's say, organically in a sense. So it's like, uh, it's, it really seems sustainable to me. And it really seems like it would work with an adult audience who needs to be targeted anyways. But again, I'm, I'm excited uh, to go to VidCom later this week. I've signed up for, I don't know if you have to sign up, but I've got it in my calendar anyways. Every time there's like a Facebook thing, because I really, really want to learn more about this platform and, and see how I can exploit it in business. Yeah, it's such a totally different approach than YouTube, right? Where uh, Facebook is focused much more on the live content, the newsfeed experience and, and autoplay views. And so therefore maximizing impressions, YouTube is driven by subscriber activity and search. Exactly. So in your experience outside of those two platforms, what other video sites or destinations are popular to pull it? Do we see Instagram, Snapchat? Well, Snapchat was gaining some insane momentum, but then all of a sudden this magical thing called Instagram stories appeared. And at first, everyone was kind of like, oh, that's silly. Why would I use that? Oh, yeah. they're just copying Snapchat. But it was like a week later, everyone's like, Snapchat? What's Snapchat? <laughs> everyone quickly got on board. That from like yeah. 1985, uh-huh. some antiquated technology. And I won't lie to you, that was a relief to me because we have to maintain many different accounts for each asset that we run. Mm-hmm. So our show top 10, all-time top 10s, it's not enough to have 5 million views every month on YouTube. You need to be able to complement it with Instagram, with Facebook, with Snapchat, you know, with anything that exists. Otherwise, the brands don't want to talk to you. Are and the brands beginning to cool on Snapchat or do they still feel like it's the hot new thing and they want to advertise it? I think that a little bit depends on who you ask in Poland. But in our experience, I don't really remember the last time that we sold a Snapchat campaign in Poland. Instagram is hot. Everyone wants Instagram and uh, that's a little bit frustrating for me (laughs) because I don't possess too many large Instagram accounts and I think they're a little bit harder to grow. They're harder for us to grow than a YouTube channel, but I think that's a matter of learning and maybe refocusing some resources. But for many of our partner channels, some of these people have half a million followers on Instagram and it's amazing how much opportunity they can have as a result. What is your take on the long-term viability of Snapchat? I'm not a Snapchat expert. Mm-hmm. I actually used the thing myself for about a week and then I erased it off of my phone. Just, I needed to have an understanding for what sure. the kids were were using. But from what I see now in Poland, I don't want to say anything inappropriate right now. <laughs> Let's just say that unless they allow, I don't know, maybe more risque kind of content, I don't really see a place for it mm-hmm. whatsoever. You on the future of the Instagram video platform. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, when I think about YouTube stars in Poland, I can only think about two or three off the top of my head who I know are active on Snapchat. And from what I understand, it's not even active compared to their other social media. So in short, I think Snapchat in Poland is going to be a phase and go away. What other predictions do you have for the future of the video space? Any other observations to share? I think that people are going to be forced eventually to diversify. If not for actual changes in YouTube, I think it would be for the paranoia of changes on YouTube. People, it's kind of insane to have all your eggs in one basket. Like if you look back in the 90s, I guess what were the equivalent of YouTubers then? 
alternative rock bands, you know, they had their CDs, which I think were essentially their YouTube channels, right? Because the CDs went to the radio, CDs were in people's house. They did earn a little something on them, but the record company was taking a massive cut. Then, of course, they had their touring. They had their merchandise. They had their TV appearances, radio spots, commercials, uh, music used in soundtracks. And this was hugely diversified. So if you remove the CD, as CDs have been removed, artists still go on to create and exist. And I think that we have like a similar potential for that predicament here. There's no telling what would become of YouTube. I hope that it goes on and on and on because I got an early start in it. So if it continues to be relevant 10 years from now, I'll really, really have a nice space. So it's my wish that it will go on. But you think at but, the same time, there will be and there need to be more revenue streams for creators? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what do I predict for the video space in the next 10 years? It's diversification. Absolutely. Onto other social media platforms, merch, live events. I predict that people who have really discernible crafts and talents will become more and more relevant. I don't know if that's a prediction or a wish, but I think that there is a space for them. And I think that they are out there, you know, songwriters, artists. One thing, I don't want to claim it as a prediction, but I have a feeling that as linear television diminishes, the people who control it will take more active influence in the online space. And to me, there's really no telling for how that will end, but I'm hoping that it ends in more productions like House of Cards, quite frankly. Have you finished watching the latest season? No, and don't you dare tell me anything about it because <laughs> I didn't well even start. Yeah. yeah, it's very good. Do you see online video content rivaling that of traditional media at some point, or the two will just converge and people will be watching House of Cards alongside YouTube Originals, alongside you know, other forms that you see? I hope that we'll be able to say that we're rivaling for TV budgets down the road. Because now multi-channel networks are typically fighting for some multimedia XYZ budget. You know, it's a little sliver of the cake. And I think it's actually due to us to have proper funds allocated to our craft. Actually, I think brands get away with a lot. When I compare what linear television earns for delivering commercials that have very little influence with the people who watch them, to what we can create when we have a product placement. You know, it's essentially a brand endorsement, which in the past was very hard to come by and very, very expensive. I think that our value is actually much higher than where it currently is in, in what we earn. So if we can all just hold out and not fight with each other too much, understand that we're all a part of the same uh, beast, and that the pie is growing together, we should be working cooperatively rather than competitively. We have to be. Yeah. I'll admit that that's hard sometimes. Because I in Poland, I was one of the early ones, right? And sometimes new companies pop up and they stab you in the back. And you didn't expect it because you underestimated them. But ultimately, I know that fighting with those companies only leads to people losing money, destruction, and negativity. Like the real way forward is synergy, and cooperation 
between companies. The advice I would give to anyone who's getting into this business is don't fight with each other because it only results in a loss of revenue and a bad loss of revenue. If you were starting all over creating a new business in the online video space today, what would you do? I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but I don't know if I would be courageous enough to try that at this point. When I started, there was still so much space, but the industry is quite dominated. So unless you had some powerful media backing you, it's hard for me to imagine how you could break through, you know, from your Silicon Valley style garage. Yeah, the lady is spoken for in a sense. I think that if you have uh, resources to make productions that are better than anyone else's production, you'll win because content wins. I mean, content is the way forward. If you can achieve it in acquisition or licensing or producing, then actually there there is space for you. But still, getting it to the masses, that is hard. Yeah, especially now that YouTube and these other platforms have become more competitive and cluttered. Yeah. But you mentioned a little bit earlier about you think that there's a large segment of audience, older audiences that are underserved today. Mm -hmm. Are there specific types of content or verticals of content that uh, you would maybe explore if you, if you were starting over? I'm definitely still learning about that mm -hmm. myself. But uh, podcasting fascinates me a lot, which again is why I was really excited to be able to do this because all the sure. good podcasts that I know are from Los Angeles, uh, yours included. And... I feel like long format is very interesting because if you can do it well, if you can make captivating material, it works brilliantly with the algorithms of YouTube currently because watch time is rewarded above all else. So you don't need any elaborate production. You just need captivating discussion. And so I think that that is a really, really good way to make a wide impression. I mean, things, people like Joey Diaz or uh, Joe Rogan, for that matter, I don't think 14-year-olds are sitting around listening to their podcast or, or watching their podcast. You know, they serve what I could assume the adult demographic. I hope to do the same thing in Poland in the near future. Very good. And where can people find out more about you and more about MediaCraft Poland? Mm -hmm. Well, MediaCraft has a YouTube channel uh, for the Polish operation. It's MediaCraft TV. People can visit me on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, just search for Ryan Sokash. And if you want to see some examples of our production capability, I could also invite people to my YouTube channel, Cult America, where we experience Poland through the eyes of a foreigner who's in love with the country. <laughs> can you really call yourself a foreigner anymore at this point? Sometimes I wonder because about three people have told me that I have an accent. That's weird. That's really weird. Well, amidst the busy schedule and the international travel and everything else, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time because we really hit it off when we first had the chance to sit down and, and chat in Poland and really excited to finally get a chance to do this again here in LA and, and talk about your background. And that was all my pleasure and I look forward to seeing you in Poland again and I'll see you at VidCom in yeah, a few days. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.